trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. Some of you may have noticed we missed our conversation yesterday with uh, Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos. I just wanted to reassure you, Eric is fine. He had another trip to the dentist, so he's going to be joining us tomorrow. And we have a lot to talk about, as we do today. And by the way, our show is brought to you in part today by the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, as well as Jeff Staples Real Estate and Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse. Well, let's talk about, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about how big tech, the private sector big tech companies, you know who I'm talking about, Facebook, Google, Twitter, etc., are working overtime to shape public opinion. I mean, look, it was one thing at one time people would say, you guys, you conspiracy theorists, you think that uh, the media, in quotation marks, is out there trying to to manipulate public opinion or they're they're in the bag for this candidate or this party or this particular ideology. Well, I don't know very many people this year that uh, could could turn on pretty much any media source and not have a pretty clear sense of which ones are willing to give you information to consider and let you be the one to decide whether it's worth your time or they just want to shut it down. No, 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 we can't trust you with that. Look away, look away. There's nothing to see here. It's really disturbing. And and to me, the most disturbing part is to see how the, the media has circled the wagons, and I'm talking social media as well, to shape public opinion, particularly as it pertains to the election next week. So the question that's on a lot of people's minds is, how can we limit these private sector tech giants from doing this? And of course, the the first and and least resistance path is always, well, let's get government to do so. Let's make a law, and then they can't do this. That's a really, really bad idea. But it still leaves the question, is there a way to limit the power of these private sector tech giants without growing government? Well, Peter St. Ong actually says, yeah. Yeah, there are ways to do that. This is from uh, the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S dot org. How to limit social media's power without growing government. Peter St. Og says, censorship by private companies is a topic that divides free marketeers. But suddenly it's become important in the wake of Twitter and Facebook's recent attempts to squash a New York Post story alleging corruption in the Biden family. Last year, economist James Miller argued that just as the power company can't turn off your electricity for being a Trump supporter, social media companies shouldn't be able to silence you for your political opinions. He says others have argued that companies can silence whomever they like because it's their company. Now, Peter St. Hong says this is a red herring that misses the fact that reform would actually reduce government intervention by narrowing something called Section 230 immunity. So first, here's what the free marketers agree on. Regulation of speech by government is both unconstitutional and a very bad idea. From 1947 to 1987, the so-called Fairness Doctrine was used to utterly silence the right, 
Rush Limbaugh was a salesman for the Kansas City Royals until Reagan finally repealed the rule, and Murray Rothbard famously could fit the entire libertarian movement in a living room. The doctrine's repeal opened the floodgates for talk radio, then Fox News, and now content from the Mises Institute to Prager University to the Babylon Bee. Given that the vast majority of federal workers remain partisan Democrats, the deep state, if you will, hasn't changed its colors. Reimposing regulation of speech likely means a return to socialist domination of speech. However, actual solutions being proposed involve not more regulation, but less. I found that surprising, by the way, because I just, I figured, well, you know, we're going to haul these tech giants, you know, like Jack Dorsey or uh, Mark Zuckerberg before Congress and have them testify. Obviously, that means that Congress must have something up its sleeve to make them do what they want. So in particular, Peter St. Ong says, narrowing an immunity that was granted to online platforms in Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. This is how you can help rein in some of this misbehavior. This was a special immunity from liability for user-posted content, so long as the company was acting as a platform open to all comers. Think common carrier rules like with the phone company. He says, ironically, an original selling point of Section 230 was to prevent censorship by creating a safe harbor so companies could let people express themselves online. And that's how Section 230 worked for the first 20 years, on the understanding that active censorship could convert an online platform into a publisher with the same liability exposure as, say, a newspaper. So from a business perspective, this platform-publisher distinction was existential for social media companies. Because liability exposure would mean either ruinous lawsuits for crazy things users say, or it would require an army of content-moderating lawyers to meticulously pre-approve the 500 million tweets per day that are sent on Twitter. This meant up until 2016 that social media companies were very careful to maintain a hands-off policy, allowing essentially all legal free speech so they wouldn't lose that shield. But this started changing back in February... Of I'm sorry, it started changing in 2016, rather, as progressive pressure was brought against social media companies for the sin of giving voice to conservatives during the Brexit referendum, followed soon after by Donald Trump's election victory. Meanwhile, individual judges increasingly interpreted 230 more broadly as permitting censorship at will. In fact, European regulators actually started requiring censorship for any speech individual regulators personally regarded as too right-wing. Now, this unfortunately built a broad censorship capability in social media companies. Peter St. Ong says, given the, imp the existential importance of the shield, social media companies gradually started demonetizing users so they couldn't earn money on their channels. They moved on to outright bans, again, starting gradually by banning intentionally provocative users like Breitbart editor Milo Yiannopoulos, Alex Jones of InfoWars, and now on to increasingly mainstream users, including last week, the largest conservative newspaper in the U.S., the New York Post. And because a divided Congress won't rewrite 230, practical reform involves narrowing 230's immunities so that egregious censorship becomes once again a bad choice for social media. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has openly wished for a test case, so the court can do this. While market-friendly FCC Director Ajit Pai has proposed rules narrowing 230's immunities back to what they used to be. 
So these solutions highlight that social media censorship isn't a binary question of market versus regulation. It's a question of existing government intervention now being used to censor rather than give voice. Indeed, the pure free market solution would be repealing 230 altogether so that Twitter or Facebook face the same liability as the New York Post or, indeed, as you and I. Peter St. Ong says the alternative to reforming 230, of course, is to leave it to the market. After all, MySpace was the dominant platform until Facebook came along. Unfortunately, the market isn't as competitive as it used to be. Conservative-friendly social media startups such as Gab and Parler have faced a gauntlet of harassment and choke points, from being denied bank accounts or payment accounts to being denied essential services like web hosting or hacker protection. Given the recent explosion in corporate wokeness, this harassment isn't going away and, in fact, is likely to increase. He says beyond harassment and the natural network effects of social media, there are other anti-competitive tactics that hobble new entrants. Facebook itself rose by scraping user information from MySpace, something it now forbids. And other social media companies have copied this anti-competitive strategy. Meanwhile, Facebook in particular buys promising competitors like Instagram or WhatsApp, essentially buying an insurance policy against future competition. As a result, the competitive landscape in social media has changed markedly from the MySpace era. Now, of course, regulators could punish these strategies with aggressive antitrust, but again, that brings government uncomfortably close to patrolling speech, so it's playing with fire. He says, at this point, there is broad consensus that full censorship, or that censorship itself, rather, is problematic. Not only among libertarians and conservatives, fully <clears throat> 76% of Americans think tech has too much influence on political discourse. Just 6% think, no, it has too little. Progressives would never tolerate being silenced by a room full of activists on Twitter or Facebook, and he says neither should we. So Peter St. Ong says, doing what we can to reduce or to narrow Section 230 immunities back to a free speech interpretation could solve this while actually reducing government involvement in speech. But he says, naively throwing up our hands and hoping some free speech startup someday survives the woke gauntlet is equivalent to quitting the field of ideas while the other side is very much on the march. Interesting. I don't know. I, maybe this is stuff you knew already. I learned something from this, and I'll have this posted in the show notes if you want to spread it around and maybe you know share it with your friends so they can be in the know on this as well. We will take a quick break when we come back. We'll talk about next week's election. Among the things we're going to discuss, is America about to see the biggest emotional meltdown in history? Wow, if 2016 was any indicator, I think the answer is a resounding yes. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. Welcome back to Reveling in Wrong Think. By the way, if you haven't visited my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, take a few moments. You will find scads of show notes with lots and lots of links to great articles, thought-provoking content, and yes, there are even a couple of links there that I would ask you to strongly consider clicking on, one to be to, uh, to subscribe to the podcast. 
makes it easy for you. You can listen at your leisure. That's the beautiful thing about podcasting. You don't have to be sitting right by your device at a specific time or place in order to hear what's going on. You can listen on your commute. You can listen when it's convenient for you. I mean, it took a little while for this old radio veteran to get used to it, but I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. Second thing I would ask you to consider, if you find value in the message that you hear on this program, I would ask you to consider becoming a patron of The Brian Hyde Show. There's also a link at the bottom of the show notes in which you can click and you can donate as little as a dollar a month or $5 a month. Any amount is helpful and greatly appreciated. And I will tell you that those funds are considered sacred funds used to promote the message of free markets, personal conscience, private property rights, and personal liberty. Because that's what I do. All right. So we talked about social media giants uh, in the last segment. Let's talk a little bit more about how uh, they're getting ready for next week. I mean, it's, you know, they've been pretty careful to make sure we don't hear anything that might sway us, you know, towards uh, towards one particular candidate, <clears throat> Donald Trump. Anyway, now they're getting emergency measures in place for the aftermath of next week's election. And I know this is what has a lot of people concerned. Michael Snyder, in a great piece published on LewRockwell.com today, asks the question, are we going to witness the worst national emotional meltdown in U.S. history once this election is over? He says, right now we're experiencing the calm before the storm. Many Biden supporters believe that a Trump victory would literally be the worst thing that could possibly happen to our country. But at the moment, most of them are quite confident that Biden will win. Likewise, many Trump supporters are absolutely convinced that we will plunge into a horrifying socialist abyss if Biden wins. But for now, most of them are convinced that the polls are wrong and that Trump will pull out another victory in November. So just a little under a week until Election Day, he says most Americans really that really care about politics are mostly pacified because they believe a positive outcome is right around the corner. But he says soon that will change and tens of millions of Americans will simultaneously melt down emotionally right in front of our eyes. Now, let's step out of the article here for just a moment, and I'm just going to ask you to remember. Do you remember watching TV? Do you remember watching social media and seeing the reactions as it became clear that Trump indeed had uh, attained the necessary electoral votes to carry the day in 2016? I mean, I remember how absolutely cocksure everybody was that, oh, no, Hillary's got this. This thing is in the bag. And I actually felt a little bit sad for some of those people that, I mean, you know, they were so emotionally invested in the outcome of that election that uh, they literally would sit there and scream at the sky. I've, that's, that's one of the reasons why I kind of tend to keep politics at arm's length, just because that, that seems unhealthy to me, but we saw it happen. And I believe that uh, Michael Snyder is, is on target when he says, yeah, we're probably going to see that and more this time around. Furthermore, he says, I think just about everyone realizes this national temper tantrum is coming. It's just that most of those that deeply care about politics assume that it will happen to the other side. So at this point, even Facebook is preparing for the worst. Yay, thanks, Mark Zuckerberg. In fact, uh, Michael Snyder says they're getting ready to implement what they call emergency measures, usually reserved for the most at-risk countries. Quote, as the U.S. braces for election-related unrest next month, Facebook executives are implementing emergency measures reserved for at-risk countries in a company-wide effort to bring down the online temperature. 
The Wall Street Journal reported Sunday that the social media giant plans to limit the spread of viral content and lower the benchmark for suppressing potentially inflammatory posts using internal tools previously deployed in Sri Lanka and Myanmar. End quote. So Michael Snyder says, what would those emergency measures look like? Well, that could potentially even include manipulating your news feed to alter what sort of content you're allowed to see. Facebook has a number of options it could take, including slowing the spread of viral content and lowering the bar for suppressing potentially inflammatory posts and tweaking the news feed to change what types of content users see. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. Now, Michael Snyder says, of course, Facebook has already been manipulating our news feeds for a very long time, but that's a topic for another article. He says, personally, I absolutely detest all of the censorship that the big social media companies have been doing. And he says, I'm not surprised they're preparing to go even further. According to Facebook, these new emergency measures will be implemented if there is election-related violence. Gee, I wonder what makes them think that could happen. Could it be that BLM and Antifa have promised to get violent if they don't get their way? Just a hunch. Back to the Wall Street Journal article. However, so the social media colossus only plans to put these restrictions in place in the event of election-related violence, something many others are fearful of and preparing for. However, during a staff meeting, CEO Mark Zuckerberg said a decisive victory from someone could be helpful for clarity and for not having violence or civil unrest after the election, which would reduce Facebook's need to step in. Michael Snyder says, considering the fact that we are seeing election-related violence almost constantly now, I'd say there's a pretty good chance Facebook will actually proceed with these emergency measures. Meanwhile, the Washington Post is also deeply concerned about what this election may do to our nation. In a very long article they just published, they discussed the fact that both sides are convinced the wrong outcome will bring disaster. This sounds very familiar, by the way. One week before Americans choose their path forward, the quadrennial crossroad reeks of despair. In almost every generation, politicians pose certain elections as the most important of their time. But the 2020 vote is taking place with the country in a historically dark mood, low on hope, running on spiritual empty, convinced that the wrong outcome will bring disaster. Frank Luntz, a Republican political consultant who's been convening focus groups of undecided voters for seven presidential cycles, says, I've never seen anything like it. Even the most balanced mainstream people are talking about this election in language that's more caffeinated and cataclysmic than anything I've ever heard. Now, Michael Snyder says emotions were definitely running high in 2016, but we've never seen anything quite like this. Most Democrats believe that Trump and his supporters are deeply evil, and likewise, most Republicans believe that Biden and his supporters are deeply evil. And of course, there are also many that are convinced that all of them are deeply evil. So when you have a nation that is this deeply divided, how is anyone ever going to be able to bring us together in unity? He says, It has been said that a house divided will surely fall, and at this point our divisions have brought us to the verge of national collapse. Here's more from the Washington Post. But now the worry on the right that a democratic win would plunge the nation into catastrophic socialism, and the fear on the left that a Trump victory would produce a turn toward totalitarianism, have created a perilous moment. The idea that if the other side wins, we're in for it, said Peter Stearns, historian of emotions at George Mason University. Is that a real title? Wow. The two sides have come to view each other not as opponents, but as deeply evil, he said. And that's happening when trust in institutions has collapsed and each group is choosing not to live near each other. It seems there is no middle ground. 
Okay, I'll admit, that's, that's pretty alarming. Michael Snyder says, but as I point out at the beginning of this article, for now, both sides are relatively calm because they both believe they're going to end up winning. In 2016, the big national polls were dead wrong, and Trump pulled out a close victory when the mainstream media had assured everyone that it was inevitable that Hillary Clinton would win. Once again, this year, there are indications that the big national polls may be flawed and Trump may be doing significantly better than the mainstream media is telling us. Now, he's also being a realist here and pointing out that, on the other hand, Hillary Clinton never came close to the 50% mark in most national polls in 2016. And Joe Biden has consistently been above that level in recent weeks. Democratic operatives, he says, would have us believe that uh, that indicates that there are far fewer undecided voters around this time. Bottom line is, once an official winner is finally declared, there will be tens of millions of Americans in deep emotional pain. And when all those deeply hurting people start lashing out, Michael Snyder says, you won't want to be anywhere around. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, we are back. Found a really interesting article from James Bovard. This was uh, this actually landed in my inbox from the American Institute for Economic Research. I'm just going to suggest once again, if you are not subscribing to their daily emails, you are missing out on so much good information. AIER has been absolutely my favorite go-to source when it comes to credible and well-researched and analytical information about the handling of COVID-19. Now, for those who are immediately going to make an appeal to authority, oh, really? Well, how many epidemiologists do they have on staff? I'm not talking about medical analysis. I'm talking about analyzing the way that government and people in authority have handled the COVID-19 pandemic and how it has destroyed more lives than the virus could possibly hope to. James Bovard is one of my favorite commentators. He is very insightful, very direct, something I think is necessary in the times in which we live. He has an article here titled Defining Despotism Down. And I don't mean to suck the wind out of your sails here when it comes to next week's election, but I want you to consider what he has to say. He says the simultaneous defining down of both democracy and despotism is 2020's darkest legacy. This is the part that just jumped at me. Voters are recognizing that their ballots merely choose elective dictators who can exempt themselves from the Constitution simply by pronouncing the word emergency. At the same time, despotism is being redefined to signify government failing to force people to do the right thing. Now, James Bovard reminds us hundreds of millions of Americans were locked in their homes via governor's shutdown orders earlier this year. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden has said he may decree a national lockdown if COVID infection numbers rise. More than 10 million jobs have been lost thanks to the shutdown orders and countless misery has been imposed on scores of millions of people unnecessarily isolated from friends and family. New York, the state hit worst by COVID, had one of the earliest and strictest lockdowns in the nation. After Governor Andrew Cuomo swayed the legislature to give him authorization of absolute power, as the New Yorker declared, he issued scores of decrees, including one compelling nursing homes to admit COVID-infected patients 
and permitting COVID-infected staffers to keep working at those homes. More than 10,000 New York nursing home patients died of COVID. In June, Cuomo said the nursing home deaths occurred because the staff brought in the infection. A New Yorker profile explained that Cuomo and his aides saw the battle over COVID policy as between people who believe government can be a force for good and those who think otherwise. Bovard says for many liberals and much of the nation's media, placing people under house arrest, padlocking schools, and bankrupting business vindicated government as a force for good. But he also points out the lockdowns failed to prevent almost 9 million Americans from testing positive for COVID. The actual number of cases, by the way, may be 10 times higher, according to the Centers for Disease Control. As AIER's Jeffrey Tucker quipped, mitigating disease through compulsory lockdowns is like cleaning your house by bombing it. The World Health Organization's envoy for COVID-19, David Nabarro, warned that lockdowns have just one consequence that you must never, ever belittle, and that is making poor people an awful lot poorer. Nabarro also warned that we may well have a doubling of world poverty by next year, or at least a doubling of child nutrition, malnutrition, rather. Lockdowns were initially justified to, quote, flatten the curve, and they've been perpetuated on increasingly ludicrous pretexts. For instance, California Governor Gavin Newsom recently decreed that COVID restrictions would be perpetuated in California counties based on voter turnout, alcohol availability, and other non-health factors. California Assemblyman Kevin Kiley groused an entire county can be kept shut down because certain areas are judged to be lacking in equity, even if the whole county has relatively few cases of COVID. And in Washington, D.C., the local government is perpetuating private and public school shutdowns and other restrictions as long based on, as long based on a newly decreed standard, a requirement that more than 60% of new cases be closely connected to other known cases. Now, the city currently can connect less than 10% of their cases, so this veto on normalcy can last forever, or at least as long as devotees pledge their devotion to mindless data and science. D.C. COVID mania is so extreme that worshippers at the Basilica at Catholic University have been prohibited from performing the Stations of the Cross inside the church, instead being ordered to sit in a pew. Now, James Bovard says the contract between the citizens and the government in this nation hinges on elected politicians obeying the Constitution. After COVID crackdowns obliterated constitutional rights, courts slammed run-amuck rulers. Run-amuck rulers, rather. Federal Judge William Stickman IV last month condemned Pennsylvania's COVID restrictions, saying broad population-wide lockdowns are such a dramatic inversion of the concept of liberty in a free society as to be nearly presumptively unconstitutional. The Michigan Supreme Court ruled earlier this month that Governor Gretchen Whitmer had enacted a state of emergency far beyond what, a, what an unconstitutional state law allowed. Federal Judge Daniel Domenico last week ruled that some of Colorado's COVID restrictions violated religious freedom, saying the Constitution does not allow the state to tell a congregation how large it can be when comparable secular gatherings are not so limited, or to tell a congregation that its reason for wishing to remove facial coverings is less important than a restaurant's or spa's. And finally, in May, the Wisconsin Supreme Court struck down the state's official stay-at-home order as unlawful, invalid, and unenforceable. Bovard goes on to point out the U.S. Department of Justice declared earlier this year there is no pandemic exclusion to the fundamental liberties the Constitution safeguards. Attorney General William Barr declared last month that imposing a national lockdown, stay-at-home orders, is like house arrest 
It's, you know, other than slavery, this is one of the greatest intrusions on civil liberties in American history. But most of the media cheered on almost every arbitrary restriction imposed by any government official in the name of fighting COVID. University of Chicago law professor Eric Posner fretted in the Washington Post that judicial opposition to the lockdown orders is not just about religious liberty. It's also about, and perhaps really, about the role of government in American life. And any limit on government power is equivalent to national suicide, apparently. A New York Democratic legislator told The New Yorker that Governor Cuomo is inclined toward tyranny, but in a crisis, that's what people want. The media's valorization of Cuomo helped make his new book, American Crisis, Leadership Lessons Learned from the COVID-19 Pandemic, a bestseller. Tyranny is comforting to some people, regardless of how much havoc and pointless suffering tyrants inflict. For many liberals, mandatory masks have become the new version of the Emancipation Proclamation. In his acceptance speech at the Democratic National Convention, presidential candidate Joe Biden declared, we'll have a national mandate to wear a mask, not as a burden, but as a patriotic duty to protect one another. When asked if he will force everyone to wear a mask, Biden replied, this isn't about freedom. It's about freedom for your your neighbors. Biden also declared every single American should be wearing a mask when they're outside for the next three months at a minimum. Dr. Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, said in July that a federal mask mandate would be authoritarian, but then he just endorsed a national mask decree last week. So the ultimate symbol of maskless tyranny became Trump's White House balcony appearance when he removed his mask and muttered a few words after exiting Walter Reed Hospital, even though no one was standing close by. Now, Trump was widely compared to Mussolini, as if not wearing a mask was the ultimate betrayal of the American people. Rather than campaigning against Trump's abuses of power, Biden and the Democrats are condemning Trump for not seizing far more power to pretend to keep everyone safe from everything. He says, during the first years of the war on terror, some servile Republicans cheered on Bush administration travesties with the throwaway line, you don't have any constitutional rights if you're dead. Nowadays, many frightened Americans seem ready to support perpetual lockdowns based on the axiom, you don't have any rights if anyone tests positive for COVID-19. Think about this. A virus with a 99.9% survival rate has spawned a 100% presumption in favor of despotism. James Bovard concludes by saying the failure of Iron Fist policies should be the storyline of the 2020 election. But instead, Biden and much of the media want to double down on repression. Can the votes that are cast in the coming week close the authoritarian Pandora's boxes that have opened across the nation? Or will conniving invocations of data and science suffice to blight Americans' rights and liberties in perpetuity? I think he says it about as clearly as it can be said there. And by the way, I don't know that, uh, you know, just you know, understanding this is one thing, But now the question that pops into people's minds is, okay, so what can I do about it? What can we do about it? And the truth of the matter is, if if you're looking to influence public policy, particularly at the highest level, we'll say the national level, for instance, there's probably not a lot you can do. But I'm here to tell you that's okay. Because your life is lived and your freedoms are claimed at the individual level. That's where you can do an awful lot. And it's simple things. You don't have to, you know, go set yourself on fire, you know, to prove the point. You just live your life as freely as you can without asking permission. And watch how it sparks courage 
and reassurance in others. By the way, on the mask issue, when we come back, I've got a great essay from Barry Brownstein about how the masks should not divide us. This is really great stuff. We'll get to it right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, we are back. Thank you for reveling in Wrong Think with us today. My goal is that someday it becomes a badge of honor to wear the badge of the wrong thinker. People would say it as a compliment. Hey, have you seen uh, seen Jonesy over there? Whew, man, that dude is a total wrong thinker. And people just kind of swoon like, wow, yeah. Sarah over there, she's a wrong thinker too. I just, I wish my girls could grow up to be just like her. I know, it's, it's a pipe dream. Maybe it's never going to happen, but I just, I have a dream. If I could borrow a phrase from Martin Luther King Jr., my dream is that more people start questioning the conventional wisdom and uh, by doing so, reclaim what is rightly theirs, and that is the freedom to peacefully live their lives without someone's thumb on top of their heads. I know, it's a crazy dream, but nonetheless, there it is. So let's talk about the mask issue. I haven't, uh, I, I'll have to admit, I really haven't been out as much in public. I've, uh, it's not that I'm, I'm hiding out or trying to be a hermit. I just haven't had as many uh, opportunities to get out there and circulate. But I do see that uh, there are people who are still pretty wound up over the mask issue. And in fact, what, what's most concerning is this tendency that, and this is true on both sides, so I'm not trying to pick on just those who wear masks, but some people feel like, well, if, if you aren't on the same side of the mask issue that I am, I have free reign to abuse you as I see fit. In fact, it's the responsible thing to do. I'm not sure quite where the, where the ethics of that in, you know, evolved, but it's behavior that you can see just about anywhere. Barry Brownstein, thoughtful as ever, has a great essay that was published recently on intellectualtakeout.org. Masks don't have to divide us. And I think he has a message here worth considering. He says, recently a medical technician observed that some patients are so frightened of COVID-19, they have lost their ability to respect her humanity. All that matters, she said, is how well you're meeting their demands for safety. They treat me like an object, not a human being, she continued. Why can't people respect each other? We're Americans. We're supposed to be tolerant, not intolerant. And he says, perhaps the most visible manifestations of intolerance during COVID-19 is the mask issue. We hear the stories. An improperly masked shopper is approached by angry, properly masked shoppers who move close, demanding the mask be adjusted. If the improperly masked shopper is such a threat, why would the properly masked shopper get so close as to put themselves in harm's way? Engage mask advocates and they'll tell you, and you'll notice rather, he says, they are sincerely and often angrily bewildered by anyone objecting to the simple act of wearing a mask, an action they are sure save lives, saves lives, rather. To the, both sides of the mask divide, Barry Brownstein says the other side seems deserving of rebuke, even scorn. If not evil, those on the other side are uninformed. For those sickened by the division, he asks, what can we do? Well, we can begin by being better observers of our everyday experience. Psychiatrist Robert Rosenthal, in his book, From Loving One to One Love, 
asks us how asks us to look at how pervasive grievances are in our lives. Listen to this quote. Unless you're born a saint, it is impossible to go through life without at some point holding grievances. These could be just about anything. The jar with a tight lid that refuses to open, the traffic light that turns red just as you approach, the sports team that humiliates the hometown favorite in the playoffs, traffic backed up on the freeway, the appliance that breaks down at the worst possible moment. Now these grievances, or the grievances that stick with us though, he says most, are focused on other people. And Rosenthal says no two people see things exactly the same way. If you're not comfortable with that basic fact of life, you are on the road to continual annoyance or even outrage. COVID-19 has exacerbated, not caused, a pre-existing mindset of outrage over differences. Barry Brownstein relates how he and his wife were recently hiking on a carriage road, passing hikers with at least a 15-foot wide berth. Yet many hikers masked up as they passed. And he points out how thoughts of irritation entered his mind for the new social norm of masking for momentary outdoor encounters. Before COVID-19, most people made eye contact and said hello to other hikers in passing. Sometimes a hiker needed trail information or encouragement to continue. Sometimes a brief but enriching conversation began. These days, fewer hikers greet each other. Most keep moving as though you're a potential mugger on an urban sidewalk. He says, I miss hiker camaraderie. He says, I kept my mental complaints to myself, but I had become part of the problem. That day I saw my world as masked versus unmasked. I had engaged in the tribal thinking I often decry. My choice to give relevance to the masking choices of others was nobody's fault but my own. He says, paraphrasing a Buddhist teaching, Rosenthal shows that the cost of holding grievances is lost peace of mind. Holding a grievance is like thrusting a sword through your midsection in order to wound the offender who's standing behind you. You may succeed, but the consequences will prove more deadly for you than for them. Another good analogy is that a grievance like a hot coal is like a hot coal that you hurl at the person who wronged you. But in order to throw it, you must first grasp it in your hand. Ooh, I like that one. He says it's one thing for grievances to arise, but Rosenthal questions why we prefer to hold on to our resentment and poke at it regularly, turning it over in our minds again and again, repeatedly harming ourselves. Rosenthal writes, grievances are truly double-edged swords, and the edge facing you turns out to be the sharpest. So Barry Brownstein says, reverse the situation. What is our response when someone holds a grievance toward us? In meditations, Marcus Aurelius provides... The antidote, quote, someone despises me. That's their problem. Mine, not to do or say anything despicable. Someone hates me, their problem. Mine, to be patient and cheerful with everyone, including them. Ready to show them their mistake, not spitefully or to show off my own self-control, but in an honest, upright way, end quote. To be in a state of conflict, Aurelius believed, was to act against our true nature, We were born to work together like feet, hands, and eyes, like the two rows of teeth, upper and lower. To obstruct each other is unnatural. To feel anger at someone, to turn your back on him, these are obstructions. We're missing the fundamental truth that we are all connected. A hostile mindset is no way to live in peace with others. Significantly, without peace in our heart, we won't find common ground or change minds. The way out is realizing our hand is tightly gripping the hot coals. Notice how they burn you, disturbing your peace of mind. Notice how you don't want to release the coals because your grievance is a righteous one. 
Oh, does that ring true? Brownstein says, in a potential Biden administration, a national mask mandate and other COVID-19 policies you oppose may be implemented. Many of your neighbors and family members will cheer. We can oppose policies with vigor without demonizing others. Aurelius was clear that our essential nature is the same. Quote, I've seen the beauty of good and the ugliness of evil, and have recognized that the wrongdoer has a nature related to my own, not of the same blood or birth, but of the same mind and possessing a share of the divine. Barry Brownstein concludes by saying, if we realize our essential nature is the same, being tolerant of our differences becomes easier. As we release the coals we so tightly grip, our voice may be better heard, hearts, uh, rather, minds may change, and respect for our common humanity may be restored. Now, I see a lot of wisdom in what he has said here, and I'm going to take it beyond just the mask issue and point out that uh, the, the greatest success that I have ever had in persuading someone to consider a point of view that uh, was not their own or was, was uh, at, the, at the time incompatible with what they currently believed was I had to lose the need to win. In other words, that, that desire to prove them wrong and show them, look, you're wrong, admit it, say uncle. We've all been there, Right. Sometimes it was arguing with them on the radio. Sometimes it was arguing with them online. But something incredible happens when you lose that need to puff up and dominate another person. When you stop seeing them as as an enemy to be vanquished and start viewing them as a prize to be won. And it sounds really hard at first. But if you take the approach that Marcus Aurelius had, even if they're behaving in a really aggressive, you know, guerrilla-like fashion, and, you know, they're, they're puffing up and trying to show that domination. If you can take the approach that, hey, that anger is their problem. And I'm not going to make it worse by bringing more anger into the situation. So what do I do? I speak the truth. I speak it with love, not with condescension. Plant the seed, and if necessary, walk away. If really, if they want to have a fight rather than a conversation, probably the best thing to do is to just walk away. You would be shocked at how many times people have come up to me over the last five years since I really consciously started trying to implement this approach in my life and have said things along the lines of, well, now that I've had some time to think about what you said, I can see your point of view. Once in a great while, they'll say, I've come around to agreeing with you. I don't count on that, because to me it's enough just that they're willing to consider another point of view that broadens their perspective and helps them understand that we can hold differing points of view without the world flying apart. What a concept. This is The Brian Hyde Show.